From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Emily, and I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, Christian. Hey, everybody. Medieval Europe was a very diverse place in many different aspects. The main unifier of these countries was Christianity. Religion brought these kingdoms together, creating the identity known to us as Latin Christendom. However, religion also tore these kingdoms apart. The average medieval European was very religious and lived their life according to their beliefs. Religion even took a central place in the economy and government. Kings were ordained by God, and clergy would often advise the ruling monarch. Kings would also try to garner good favor with the Pope by making massive donations to the church, observing and celebrating religious holidays and festivals, as well as going on crusade. Pilgrimage to the nearest important reliquary was very popular, and certain cities like Rome, Compostela, and Canterbury drew in thousands of pilgrims, boosting the local economies. Today we are going to explore the role of religion in the lives of the average medieval European, as well as some of the important events and evolutions of the clergy and of the church. To help us explore these topics, we have a returning guest, Professor John Ott, a specialist in medieval history at Portland State University. Professor Ott focuses specifically on the ecclesiastical history of northern France and Flanders and has written an interesting book on the subject called Bishop's Authority and Community in Northwestern Europe, circa 1050 to 1150. Professor Ott, welcome back on the show and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Professor, let's start with some basic questions about religion in medieval Europe. How powerful was the church in political matters between kingdoms? Did the church try to advise the leaders of medieval Europe on political matters? That's a great question, and the answer really depends on what period of medieval history we're going to be talking about. Uh, it's absolutely the case that the church was not a static institution, nor was the influence and power of its leaders, the bishops of Rome, the popes, uh, consistent throughout the 1,000-year period we call the Middle Ages. So if we look at the earlier medieval world of the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries, we would say that popes uh, had some influence with the kings of Europe, uh, with the states of Europe, but it tended to be pretty limited and uh, erratic. Uh, It would come and go. If we turn our attention to the 12th and 13th and 14th centuries, we can say unquestionably that the papacy had a great deal of influence in political affairs elsewhere in Europe, and the popes routinely became involved in the state affairs of its kingdoms and its monarchs. So we have to qualify our answer in in this respect. Uh, So I don't know if you have a particular period in mind that you want to look at, but uh, that gives you a rough sense of the differences. Okay. Um, If you had to ballpark, when would you say the church or the pope became a powerful player in medieval Europe at, like, the earliest point? Uh, A powerful player and a consistent player, I would say uh, we have to turn towards the latter half of the 11th century and then look at the period that follows from then. Um, That's the moment where a series of popes begin to more consistently assert their authority in the affairs of Christendom. They, of course, 
claimed uh, the authority uh, as the as the vicars of Christ, as the the bishops of Rome over all Christians everywhere, and really began to make the case for their authority within a universal Christendom, irrespective of the claims of secular monarchs or secular powers. And what's equally important is that they increasingly uh, made use of, of various tools, uh, including excommunication and other forms of censure uh, in building strategic political alliances. They made use of these tools to actually try to assert their will or impose their will on the wills of Europe's monarchs. So they not only had a, a kind of an ideological foundation that they began to build in the late 11th century for their, their claims to uh, universal religious authority, which had always been there, but now were being uh, more readily and eagerly expressed, uh, but they also had a, a growing arsenal that they could bring to bear to try to influence the, the kings and political powers of Europe in the later Middle Ages. Christianity was definitely a very powerful religion in medieval Europe, but there were worshippers of other religions such as Judaism and Islam. How were the members of these religious minorities treated by the Christian dominant governments? Wow, that is a great question and an and equally, if not more complex question than the first one you asked. I'll do my best to to give some sense of, of the place, particularly of Jews within medieval Christendom. There were absolutely Muslims uh, living under Christian secular powers in the later Middle Ages, especially in the Iberian Peninsula and also in places like southern Italy and Sicily. Uh, but the best known and most visible minority as far as most European Christians were concerned were Jews. And they uh, lived generally under the direct power, protection, and authority of uh, the kings and princes of Europe. So um, we have to look at their position from multiple different angles. So I'll try to offer a rapid resume. As far as church authorities were concerned, as far as, as papal theory uh, and papal doctrine were concerned, Jews were uh, to be left unmolested. They were to uh, not be attacked because they were Jews. But their, their social and their uh, political and their economic condition as a minority people were, the thinking went, uh, to be left to remind Christians of what happens to people who fail to believe in or profess Christian revelation. In other words, the minority status of the Jews was a status that they had brought upon themselves from their denial of Christian revelation. So they were to remain an, a protected and unmolested minority. Um, in a similar sense, secular authorities, whether they were territorial princes or kings, um, also were directly or, or took, assumed direct responsibility uh, for the Jewish populations in their midst. These were populations that they had frequently uh, invited into their domains, into their territories, uh, to add uh, an economic stimulus to um, the region or to the city or to the kingdom as a whole. The Jews, uh, the Jewish communities of Europe often ended up uh, being the bankers of its secular powers. 
So the monarchs ha had, a, generally speaking, had a vested interest in protecting these populations. And consequently, um, the Jewish populations of Northern Europe, uh, but also of uh, Iberia and elsewhere, enjoyed um, a set of economic uh, protections, uh, political protections, uh, religious protections for that matter, um, that were um, reinforced by the secular authorities themselves. Now, having said that, it's important to note that kings and princes often turned on their Jewish communities, their Jewish populations, when it suited their political or fiscal interests. And this becomes increasingly common really starting from the late 12th century and then on into the later Middle Ages. So the Jewish minority of medieval Europe occupied a very precarious position, at once protected and reviled, at once uh, necessary but marginal to Christian life. For ordinary folks, much, living much below the level of kings and, and popes, um, interactions with Jews, uh, depending on where they lived, of course, would have been far more routine uh, and would also have veered from friendliness and neighborliness to at times outright hostility. So uh, scholars have in recent years really emphasized the integration and interconnectedness of Europe's medieval Jews with its medieval Christians. Uh, this interconnectedness again though was not a sufficient firewall against uh, the violence that, that could and did occur. Uh, particularly in the later Middle Ages with, with growing intensity. So the range of reactions to and interactions with uh, the Jewish population of Europe was, was tremendous and ran the gamut from you know, casual day-to-day -day interaction, friendliness, uh, to economic exchange and ultimately um, to a political protected status and also um, to uh, a marginalized and precarious position. So going off the small guy, if you will, um, what role did religion play in everyday life of an average medieval European? And let's limit this to Christianity. Okay. Well, that's another great question, and the role is considerable. And uh, it's... Uh, unquestionably the case that medieval Europeans, um, nearly all of whom were baptized Christian and having been baptized were considered Christian from that point on, unless they should do something uh, horrible from the eyes of the church and renounce that Christianity for another religious profession, which did happen. But they were Christian, baptized, and their connection to their church formed a part of their daily experience from the village to the city. Uh, clergy and church institutions were highly visible. In smaller communities, the, the parish priest was an integral member of that community, and their major life milestones revolved around the church and its sacraments, everything from birth to marriage to death. Uh, two points in between were marked by the uh, sacramental rituals uh, that integrated ordinary people into the Christian community. So medieval people didn't have to walk very far or look very far or live very long to feel the church as a regular presence in their lives. I, I think it's important to, to note that people went about their day-to-day -day business without necessarily thinking about the church and its teachings, much as uh, religious believers do now. They could live and act in 
in sort of different spectrums of life uh, and go about their daily business without necessarily reflecting on church doctrine or theological questions and that sort of thing. But um, culturally, institutionally, the, the church was an ever-present part of ordinary people's lives. And it's worth adding, in particular, that starting in the 11th and 12th centuries, uh, people began to take a growing interest in the quality of their clergy. They took a growing interest in uh, the moral purity of their clergy. And the reach of centralizing institutions like the papacy into the lives of ordinary Christians began to increase dramatically. Uh, so what one starts to see really beginning in the 12th century is very ordinary and fairly mundane concerns touching on especially things like marriage. Uh, cases finding their way all, you know, all the way to Rome where the Pope would offer a judgment on a particular dispute or complaint touching on the marriage of some ordinary couple somewhere. So it became increasingly common for people to seek recourse in religious matters to the authority of the Pope. And the Popes increasingly had the capacity to in turn act on a local level by issuing decisions in legal cases, for example, or cases where there was a dispute uh, about a marriage or whether a divorce could take place. So uh, Rome remained, for the most part of the Middle Ages, a fairly distant place to ordinary Christians, but not only through legal interaction, but through pilgrimage and through other means, Rome became an increasingly uh, active presence in the lives of ordinary people. Why would the Pope um, have an interest in marriages and everyday goings-on of people thousands of miles away? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and the, the reasons are, are multifaceted. Uh, on the one hand, the sacramental position of marriage within uh, church doctrine was becoming increasingly important and had been by the 11th and 12th centuries uh, taken shape uh, and become actively taught. Uh, marriage was not always uh, a sacrament in the Catholic Church. It only really became formalized as one in the 12th and 13th centuries, although it had been long before that increasingly the case that a priest would preside over marriages. But it didn't take the presence of a priest to make a marriage necessarily in the earlier Middle Ages. So on the one hand, the sacramental status of marriage was changing, and uh, consequently uh, this meant a, a growing priestly role in, in marriages between uh, ordinary Christians. But the, the other, one of the other factors playing into this growth and in interest on the part of the papacy in marriage was that uh, the popes had increasingly been uh, letting medieval Christians know that any complaint, any complaint touching on religious life could be referred to the pope for review. The papacy was the last court of appeal. So if one took a, say, a, a, a divorce court type case, a marriage dispute, to a local bishop or the local clergy and the bishop did not have a ready answer to the questions put to him by referring to the existing body of canon law, the law of the church, then he might in turn write to the pope and say, Pope, 
I've got a case here, uh, the answer to which I can't provide. Can you give me some legal guidance? And the Pope would respond back. So there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these letters um, from the popes to local uh, bishops uh, or other presiding clergy uh, telling them what his legal decision was in a particular marriage case. And the Pope had batteries of lawyers uh, by this time to help him sift through all this um, this legislation and all these legal appeals that were finding their way to Rome. So uh, it, it's uh, not uncommon to find in 13th century papal registers the Pope making a decision on a, on a case. A comp- these were often very sticky uh, marriage cases uh, where you have... Uh, um, a whole range of, of circumstantial problems impinging on it from uh, questions of incest to uh, marriage, I mean, to, to uh, sex before and after the marriage itself, uh, to the extent to which partners in the marriage were legally bound to that marriage after the person they were married to had committed some kind of uh, uh, religious infraction or social infraction. So. Um, these cases uh, uh, exist in numerous and uh, in great quantity in the in the registers of the popes, and uh, were being read, you know, in every corner of Europe, really. So the church was known for producing a large amount of documents because many members of the clergy were trained in reading and writing in Latin. Some of these documents are the only contemporary records of certain historical events. Is it ever hard to navigate the religious bias in these documents when using these texts for research? Well, it certainly can be for uh, people who aren't accustomed to reading documents produced in the Middle Ages. For professional historians who work on medieval Europe, it's um, generally not much of an issue. Um, We're aware of textual bias, we're aware, aware of authorial bias, and we're aware of the cultural and religious bias of the authors of um, the majority of our, of our surviving documentation. So relatively speaking, for professionals working in the field, it's, it's generally not a problem. It's not to say it's easy always. Uh, and historians have not always been as aware of their own biases when reading these documents as they ought to be. Um, there are other various biases that work uh, in the historian are at work in the historian's mind. So, particularly older historiography often had a, a strong confessional bias. In other words, whether the history was being written by a, uh, a historian who identified with Protestantism or Catholicism could very definitely inflect the nature of their analysis or their reading of the documents. Uh, but for professional historians working today and, and working over you know the past century or so, um, we've become better at spotting these biases, spotting our own assumptions and biases, and making sure we course correct for them, and making sure that uh, those biases don't color our own reading and interpretation of the sources uh, too dramatic, uh, drastically. So let's switch topics and talk about some ideas you brought up in your book. First, I wanted to ask you why you chose the specific time frame of 1050 to 1150 CE for your book. I chose it because a lot is happening in that century. Uh, I chose it because it marks precisely the moment when 
the papacy is beginning a gradual ascent to a greater authority and power in European politics. I chose it because there is a great deal of concern and debate over uh, the nature of the church, over the quality of its priests, and because socially and economically and culturally it's a very, very vibrant time as well. The, the late 11th, 12th century is often referred to by medievalists as a, as a period of renaissance, uh, renaissance before the, the big renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries. And it's, in many ways, it's a, an apt term. Uh, the economy of Western Europe is absolutely charging forward by leaps and bounds. Uh, there is a growing middle class, a wealthy middle class, whose own religious interests and cultural concerns are driving social and political agendas. Uh, there is a flourishing in religious life, uh, really an explosion of different religious professions that individuals can choose from. And even for ordinary lay folk, uh, it's a period of growing choice in their own lives. People born into the peasantry were likely to die as peasants and their children were likely to be peasants. But even in rural peasant communities, uh, there were ways in which people could attach themselves to local monasteries and, and essentially live as lay people uh, and work for the monastic community, share in its communal rituals, and uh, ultimately be buried in uh, the communal cemetery or at least uh, have the monks pray for their, their them and their families after their deaths. So they could uh, tie themselves more closely to the religious movements that were erupting everywhere. So it's a really dynamic period in European history, and it's because of this dynamism that I wanted to focus on it. Just for a little context, could you explain what a bishop is, where they were located in the hierarchy of the church, and as well as why you chose to focus on them for your book? So the bishop is the religious head of a diocese, which is an administrative district uh, within the wider European church. Uh, the dioceses of medieval Europe were, in many respects, mapped onto the Roman uh, diocese of uh, late antiquity. The old administrative districts of the Roman Empire served as the the base matter for the, the medieval church diocese. And the bishops were the, the religious head of this, this region. It could be extremely large or it could be rather tiny depending on the antiquity of the diocese and, and where it was found. So the bishop is very much uh, the person through whom the local church uh, flowed, its business flowed. He was the individual, moreover, who connected that local church to the papacy. Uh, he was uh, likely to travel to Rome during his tenure. Many traveled to Rome on business or because they had been summoned. And he was likely, if he did not travel personally, to encounter the legates of the Pope in his own neighborhood. Uh, and it, so he was the, the figure that connects the universal church with uh, the local Christian population. 
and is ultimately responsible in his diocese for all matters touching on Christian life. But beyond that, they were also vested quite frequently with fairly exceptional secular powers, and the means of their vestment with these powers varied from place to place and time to time. But a substantial percentage of bishops, if not all bishops, enjoyed some civil and secular authority over some part of their diocese or their city. Uh, it might be very large, very vast powers, uh, including full civil powers and civil authority over the secular affairs of the diocese, or it might be rather more restricted to a particular quarter of a city, for example. But they did enjoy the secular authority as well. And consequently, they were individuals who were at the center of pretty much everything. They were at the center of religious life. They were at the center of cultural life, social, economic, and political life as well. So they make for a very appealing figure for study and analysis because their decisions and actions touched on the lives of so many others. That and they are also among the best documented figures for the medieval world. So given that we medievalists often face a fairly slender base of evidence for our subject matter, it's not uncommonly the case that bishops are the ones supplying the evidence that we do have. So you mentioned about rapid social change and cultural shifts. There were also mass migrations and crusades and many other developments and innovations that arise during this time. How did the church respond or react to these changes? Yeah, very often the church was the institution driving the wider mass movements. Uh, and in other cases, it was trying to catch up to the movements. Uh, one of the noteworthy f social features of the late 11th and 12th centuries is the uh, frequency with which we see lay movements of various kinds, often religiously oriented, uh, emerging and uh, leaving the clergy to try to come to terms with them or uh, get out in front of them in one way or another. There are lots of examples of this one can, can choose from, and, and mass movements might include things like the desire of the residents of a town to establish an autonomous communal government, a civil government that is allowed to operate with the consent of the Episcopal or secular lords over the town, depending on the, the proper, you know, the precise combination there. Uh, and the communal movements uh, sometimes uh, asserted growing authority in their own affairs that uh, was to the detriment of the local clergy or even the local bishop's prerogative. So they had to come to terms with that. Sometimes they were quite in favor of these types of governments. Other times they were opposed. There's no one answer to explain the bishop's reaction to the commune. And then you have the Crusades, uh, which you mentioned, which uh, are initiated in 1095 formally initiated in 1095, which is a movement called by the Pope himself and a movement in which a significant number of clergy participated. So it really varies, uh, runs the gamut from reaction to a more proactive position on the part of the church. And if there's a, a broad generalization we might, we might make here, it's that uh, the movements in question often rapidly got out of the control or at least um, uh, extended beyond the 
initial vision of their clerical progenitors or their clerical founders. Uh, it's not clear that Urban II imagined that the crusade would become what he thought it would be when he proclaimed it in 1095. So uh, movements had a way of very quickly uh, escaping the boundaries of authority and maybe the boundaries of control that their clerical founders first applied to them. So a lot of fun and exciting stuff is happening and something and that, not so fun stuff and too. not so fun stuff <laughs> but something that was of great interest to us was that you talk about it in your book the average layperson is taking more of an interest in looking at the clergy you describe bishops as being under a microscope could you elaborate on this development yeah so the the bishop because he's uh, the big man on campus because he's uh, the top figure of the religious hierarchy in the diocese um, is a highly visible figure. Bishops, of course, are elected for life uh, unless they retire, which did occasionally happen. Uh, they typically died in office. So they might be there from anywhere from a few months to multiple decades. So they were powerful, they were visible. And as part of the church's growing centralization and increasing involvement in clerical lives and the lives of lay people and the lives of uh, the kings, uh, the crowned heads of Europe, uh, the bishop really emerges in the late 11th century as a linchpin for change. Uh, he is the the lead person for instituting papally uh, driven agendas, moral agendas, reform agendas, political agendas in his diocese. The Pope depends on the bishop uh, to do this. And in the same way, secular authorities depended on their bishops to help them govern and often were the ones investing bishops with what secular powers they did enjoy. So the, the bishop is the key figure for both religious and political authority in the 11th and 12th centuries. And as papal authority uh, continues to be asserted, as the popes seek to introduce reform measures uh, in the lives of the clergy, in, in the church and also to transform the, their, the papacy's own relationship with, with monarchs and secular authority, the bishop becomes the, the linchpin to this strategy. So uh, he also becomes consequently the flashpoint for criticism. Uh, he, in a climate of moral renewal, often will become a flashpoint for uh, complaints about moral laxity. Uh, because he is a political actor and a figure with political power, he will be caught up in political disputes. Uh, he will occasionally be seen as a, an obstructionist force by uh, autonomy-minded communal governments, for example. So the bishops were high-profile figures whose actions uh, had a dramatic and direct effect on people. Uh, and who were necessary for realizing the agendas of their superiors in turn. 
So consequently, uh, they they uh, often had to become quite skilled if they weren't already at navigating very tricky political waters uh, between uh, the popes and the kings of, of Europe at this time. So that gives you a, a kind of a sense of why I chose bishops and why bishops are so important here. Uh, it, it's a bit like, uh, to use a modern analogy, if, if a company wished to rebrand itself, it would have to implement that branding through the uh, activities of local branch managers of the company, right? It would turn to them to make sure that the brand was consistently portrayed and realized for, uh, for the populace. So the bishops were the brand brand managers uh, of, of the church, and uh, when they didn't manage that brand in the way that their bosses wanted them to, they could uh, run into trouble. So how did the secular authority feel about ecclesiastical power? Did they see it as a threat? Often, uh, sometimes, yes. Uh, it, it, was, um, it was a competing power. It was a competing authority. Uh, it was an authority with the ability to meddle in the political affairs of the kingdom. It was an authority with the power to uh, slow down, put the brakes on, or confound the legislative and political ambitions of kings. So uh, the, the church represented a, a pole of authority and of institutional power that secular authorities had to deal with, they had to think about. Just a, a simple example of this would be uh, the case where a king, which was uh, quite common, wanted to remarry, uh, wanted to set aside uh, the spouse to whom he was lawfully wed and marry a new woman. And this required that the marriage be dissolved. Well, the, the final authority on these marriages was the papacy. Uh, and sometimes the king had loyal bishops who would go ahead and agree to the dissolution of the marriage and a, a marriage to a new partner uh, against the Pope's wishes, uh, which could lead to all kinds of interesting conflicts between the papacy and the local bishops, not to mention the king. So because marriage uh, had uh, gained sacramental status, because it was not just a social act, but one imbued with religious significance, because it touched, in other words, on religious matters, the, the popes had authority over it and consequently could make things very rough uh, for kings uh, should they, for whatever reason, disagree with the king's decision to dissolve his marriage. There are plenty of infamous uh, and not so well-known cases of this. Uh, one might think of the marriage of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, which is a 16th century rather than a medieval marriage, but uh, there were lots of similar episodes less well-known to the public uh, that occurred throughout the medieval period. And the popes were usually right there um, trying to manage those situations in a way that forwarded their own agenda, but also forwarded their, um, their defense of marriage itself as a sacrament. Uh, they didn't take sacramental status of marriage lightly. They believed in it as a sacrament and consequently sought to enforce it uh, because to broach the sacrament casually was in some way an abrogation or at least a, a finger in the eye of uh, their, the Pope's own authority. So they had a lot to, to think about in, in these sorts of affairs and marriage is just one area among many where they sought to intervene. 
So when did the institution of marriage gain this sacramental aspect? When did it go from sometimes being presided over by a member of the church to being such a big part of the church's concerns? Yeah, the turning point, once again, is this sweet spot of between about 1050 and 1150 that my book focuses on. Uh, The 12th century, I think, really marks the moment where um, clerical involvement in marriage and clerical concerns about marriages uh, begins to really take off. And uh, sacramental status is confirmed in 1215 in the legislation of the Fourth Lateran Council. Uh, But it has... uh, long before that already been the case that clergy were were generally present and involved in marriages. To be sure, uh, many people got married simply by each declaring, each member of the marriage declaring him or herself uh, married to the other, and then by consummating the marriage itself. It's really all it took to be legally married, lawfully married, uh, which is a pretty low threshold, really, uh, for something as uh, potentially long-term and serious as marriage. But the the clergy increasingly begin to take an active role in presiding at marriages, and then its sacramental status is really fixed, finally, in the early 13th century. So uh, the the process by which uh, marriage uh, gained its sacramental standing was a very long and drawn-out one. Uh, And it's fair to say that to an ordinary person, uh, these deeper theological and sacramental concerns were probably not foremost on their mind if they were aware of them at all uh, until maybe after the fact, after they had uh, negotiated a marriage the old-fashioned way, uh, simply by, by pledging their uh, their their love and their marriage to the other person and then consummating the act. So at any rate, it, it's um, by all means the case that uh, the clergy were not present at every marriage after the 12th century, uh, but they became an increasing regular feature of, of the act of marriage itself. And, I mean, we can imagine, we think about the, how complicated relationships are, whether married or non-married, between individuals and all of the... Uh, potential uh, factors that impinge upon deciding whether a marriage is valid when it's initially contracted or remains valid after it's contracted and pending the the actions of the, the partners involved. So canon law, the law of the church in the 12th century is um, disproportionately uh, preoccupied with the state of marriage. Uh, this is these It was marriage questions that drove a lot of uh, innovation in canon law and a lot of legal thinking in canon law. So one tends to read in 12th century sources about a lot of marriage cases which the local uh, diocesan priest or uh, parish priest didn't know the answer to, so he passes it on up the ladder to the next. Uh, his superior may reach all the way to the bishop's desk, and he may not even know what to do in a particularly complicated case. So he brings in the pope at that point or his archbishop to try to, to try to get some clear legal opinion. There's so much case law around marriage at this time; it's it's almost bewildering. But it, it points to not only its growing sacramental status, but the uh, the growing authority of the church that it can take time to sort out the marital affairs of ordinary po- folks.
Um, switching gears back to talking about your book, um, why were bishops becoming more progressive during this era? Progressive. Well, I don't know that I would use progressive in any modern political sense of the word. Um, bishops in this period were drawn overwhelmingly from the ranks of the secular clergy. That is to say, they were drawn from the body of clergy who were attached to and served cathedrals. And this is true for the region I work on, northwestern France. There's certainly some variety across Europe, but by and large they came from the secular clergy, although a significant proportion of them had previously been abbots or came from monastic ranks. And uh, they were increasingly a better educated bunch than, say, the bishops of a century earlier. Uh, they were more likely to be elected bishops. And a bishop is elected both by the local clergy and the uh, members of the, the lay population, the local laity. Uh, they were only recognized as, as having been canonically elected if those two elements were present, the a clerical approval and approval of the local lay community. So these bishops, in the starting around 1100, a little bit before, a little bit after, uh, increasingly were well-educated. I think, moreover, um, because of the growing importance of uh, cathedral schools where many of them are educated uh, in contemporary church society, an educated churchman was increasingly seen as, as something desirable. Uh, as the business of the church grew more complex, you needed more competent administratively or legally-minded uh, clergy to govern it. So. Uh, the, the overall uh, demographic and social profile of the bishops starting around 1100 begins to, to take shape, to change into a more of an administrative and legally competent figure. And this was absolutely not the case for all bishops. Uh, there were plenty of old school uh, bishops who rather more enjoyed uh, you know, listening to poetry in their courts and um, to uh, uh, going out to accompany the king when the king took uh, his army into battle and who uh, are members of the old nobility and think rather like their secular counterparts in the nobility. So those kinds of bishops certainly did still exist in many places. But you're going to see a more uh, administratively competent bishop. You begin to see a better educated bishop. You begin to see an increasingly legally minded bishop come into office in the 12th century, and that in turn is a reflection of larger changes within the church and within European society. Could you describe the difference between protestas and auctoritas? Potestas and auctoritas. Yes, I'm sure your listeners have been sitting <laughs> with bated breath waiting for the moment when I would talk about potestas and auctoritas. So potestas is the Latin word for, for power. Uh, and the word implies uh, the power to command, a kind of secular power to make others do one's will or one's bidding. Uh, potestas is a term that implies uh, the ability uh, to make one, someone do what you want them to. Uh, it implies the possession of actual force, coercive force as well. 
So its meaning is is more of a as more of a coercive connotation. Uh, it is a quality that kings claimed and possessed. It's a quality that territorial princes and lords claimed and possessed. And it's also a power that many bishops, by virtue of their the secular powers they held, uh, possessed. Auctoritas, uh, which is probably best translated authority, is a different quality. It's uh, a quality that uh, is produced through acts of uh, persuasion, through charisma, the charisma of uh, the individual, uh, through their ability to influence. And it also, uh, depending on who claims authority, who claims auctoritas, had a very much a divine foundation behind it. It's a quality that is conferred, for example, to bishops by virtue of their ordination. So it, it has a much more uh, metaphysical uh, quality to it. Uh, and it is, unlike power, which is coercive, authority is uh, something that is claimed and then exercised uh, but uh, it, it, it's only recognized in, in some sense sociologically through the ascent over, over those over whom the authority is being proclaimed in the first place. In other words, um, you know, I might ask you, Christian, by virtue of my authority to bring me a cup of coffee, uh, and you might, in recognition of that authority, do so, or you might decide that my authority was not on its own merits reason enough to bring me that cup of coffee, and you might refuse, in which case my authority has uh, uh, been rejected. Hey, so, if you're asking me to make Starbucks runs in 491, <laughs> I'm all for it. Oh, right. So there was, I just expressed successfully my octoritas, my, my authority over you. On the other hand, <laughs> Uh, authority was vested without, uh, without, in, in the medieval um, way of thinking about it, it was also vested without recourse to any kind of sociological theory or sociological connection behind it. In other words, I as a bishop would, if I were a bishop, would, would proclaim uh, my authority, profess my authority by virtue of my ordination of, uh, alone. This is a, this sort of a divinely vested status that no, uh, no person, no ordinary layperson could uh, successfully uh, reject or successfully um, denounce. So I would like uh, black coffee, <laughs> 12 ounces, please. Okay. Next time we're in 491, it'll be ready for you. <laughs> So, if someone came to you and said that they were interested in the ecclesiastical history of medieval Europe, what are some key sources, events, and people that you would tell them to look for? That happens just about every day, really. <laughs> uh, people just harass me constantly, wondering where they can look for more information about ecclesiastical history. Uh, well, that's a that's a really hard question to answer. It'd be like saying, "Hey, I've got an interest in U.S. politics, origins to present. Where, who can I look at?" <laughs> well, I mean, you can look at uh, presidency in the 21st century, or you could look at it in the 18th century, but they're definitely two different things. So um, it's hard to to just point to one 
type of work or one source uh, for somebody who has an interest. I, I guess I would start by asking you a series of questions in reply. Well, what kind of history interests you? Are you interested in the life of ordinary folk or of uh, powerful figures like bishops and popes and kings? Are you interested in the social aspects of uh, religion or the cultural aspects of religion or practice or liturgy or the law or a host of other topics? Gosh, let alone theology, uh, which is its own enormous field. So um, it's a little hard just to dive into the deep end uh, of a subject as vast as this one is for a period as long as the Middle Ages is. So the short answer to your question is, well, I'm going to ask you some more questions to figure <laughs> out what, what kinds of topics interest you. But, you know, that having said that, and I don't mean to be evasive here, but having said that, one can point to certain high-profile figures around whom most narratives of medieval church history, if they're not actually organized and based, at least figure prom would prominently figure into those narratives. So particular popes uh, are, are going to always make the top 10 list of important people you should know about the medieval church or from the medieval church. So figures like Pope Gregory VII, who was an 11th century pope uh, who lived from or who ruled from 1073 to 1085, or Pope Innocent III, uh, who ruled from 1198 to 1216. These are two guys that are um, milestone figures in the, um, the development of the medieval church as a whole, as an institution, and of uh, religious life as a whole for ordinary folk and for elites alike. So yeah, I could point to those two guys uh, as starting places, but they also wouldn't begin to really capture the diversity and the variety of, of um, ecclesiastical history in this period. But you'll have to start somewhere, right? And we have to start usually with a figure that seems particularly interesting to us and go from there. So this is one of my favorite questions to ask, but if you could go back in time, when and where would you go? Oh, man. <laughs> um, well, I'll answer this, but only by prefacing my reply first by noting that as long as I don't have to stay there, I'm happy to travel <laughs> back. Um, you wouldn't want to live in medieval Europe? No, surprisingly, I have zero interest in that. <laughs> and I wouldn't really want to stay that long either. Maybe a week tops. Uh, or if you could just kind of hop around like some kind of, uh, you know, time bandit, time traveling figure, then maybe maybe that would be okay. Well, I don't know. I would probably... It, I'm interested by all periods of medieval history, so it's really hard to pick just one. But there are a couple of key moments I'd really would wish we knew more about and would love to have been present at uh, for at least a short time. One of these is um, Pope Urban II's famous council at Clermont in 1095, where he calls the First Crusade. We have multiple reported speeches uh, including a couple by figures who were there, but all written at a minimum around 10 years after the event and nothing verbatim from Urban himself. 
So we know more or less what he said, although historians have long debated the precise contents of that speech, but we don't certainly don't have a transcript or anything that juicy that would let us know what he said, let alone precisely how the event was was stage managed, was was choreographed and engineered by the Pope and his assistants. So I'd love to know what exactly was said uh, at that event and to have seen the reaction because of course it proved so crusade proved so important for the later course of european history from the 12th century virtually down to our own time so that's kind of one of those key moments where you wish you could be a fly on the wall and and see what was going on um i could probably come up with lots of others but um That'll, that'll do for now. The, maybe one other would be I'd love to have attended one of the, the big church councils, um, uh, the Fourth Lateran, which I mentioned earlier, which happened in 1215, was, a, again, a moment so critical for the future direction of the church in Europe that it would have been nice to have uh, seen that in person and to heard the debates that went into it, uh, that went into the production of the 71 canons that uh, were legislated there. So that'll do in lieu of a, of a, you know, of a, of a different, uh, different locations, different times. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on again and interviewing us. I was just wondering if there were any classes next term that you wanted to throw out to the listening community. Is it time for shameless plugs? Shameless plugs <laughs> all the way. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for... Uh, for both me and for all the students interested in medieval history, I'm only offering the second part of my seminar class for which students have to be enrolled in the current section of that class. So I'm not teaching any courses which students other than the ones currently in my seminar can take um, next term. Uh, It's possible uh, I'll be teaching a summer course, although that's not clear yet, but I can at least hold out the hope and promise that I'll be doing my sequence of medieval European history starting in the fall with early medieval Europe and continuing into the winter term with late medieval Europe and culminating, I think, in the spring with Renaissance and Reformation Europe. So that might be something that those interested in the subject can look forward to either attending or auditing as they like. I know if Christian could take them again, he probably would. <laughs> oh, well, that's... Uh, that's I can I, still I, take the early in Renaissance and Reformation. That's, that's the authority working, Christian, yep. right there. <laughs> One last note. Next week, Christian and I will be doing our own personal review of the 2018 version of Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, plenty of spoiler alerts. So oh, yeah. if you haven't seen it or don't want to know, do not listen to the show. This has been Beyond Footnotes, produced by the students of PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this and other episodes on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. We will also be doing a student contest show where we quiz our fellow history students on facts about history. So please let us know if you would be interested in that. Our email is beyondfootnotes at gmail.com, and you can always check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you.